Happy Sunday to you. If we haven't met before, my name is Kyle, and we're in a series called Next, and I'll get to that in just a second. But I want to brag a little bit on our team. Uh, we have released a Christmas Advent. We used to do a calendar. Now we do a full magazine. Like someday it'll just be a book. We're just going to keep going up. It'll be great. But we really hope uh, that you'll enjoy this. Uh, you can get them outside. Uh, and I, I think it's not at the Connection Center. I think it's actually in the lobby. But man, there are like recipes in here. There are crafts. There's devotionals for you and your family. Our team spent a lot of time to help you in this Christmas season uh, get into Christmas spirit. I know no one does that very early, and so we figured we'd help you out. You guys already have like your present spot and your, your tree's already up, but this will, this will continue to help you do this. So you really hope you'll do that. We've only printed out so many, so you should run. Not right now. I still have stuff to stay, but so afterwards maybe. But this is a great way of not only connecting to our church, but also just the Christmas spirit. And so there are, again, recipes in here. There are devotionals from our staff, um, stuff that's going on in the community. You know, we're promoting some other stuff that's happening outside of the church. It's also a great way for you to invite people uh, because who doesn't like a sweet magazine with all sorts of pretty stuff? stuff in here, and we hope you'll get that. You can get that. I'll talk that. I'll talk a little bit about that at the end as well. So we are in this series <clears throat> called Next, and it's kind of like a weird series. We're, we've been doing mini-series in this large series called Bible in a Year, and we started in May of last year, and now we're going to finish in May of 2024, and we're getting to the end where we're almost finished the Old Testament. So congratulations, you're almost finished with more than half the Bible. Great job, 39 books, and so you've done a really good job. Um, some person <clears throat> who remained nameless told me I haven't pointed out all of the books. I've left out one books, uh, one, one books, one book, and uh, I didn't say anything about it, and so I figured I need to actually talk about all the books. So I'm going to mention it today. I have not mentioned the Song of Solomon's, so if you want a better sex life, read that book. All right. Now that I've mentioned it, <clears throat> now we can proceed, right? I've mentioned them all, okay? You're like, okay, I got so many questions, you know. Just talk to your parents, okay. So we are in this series called Next, and uh, there's a reason for this graphic. You know, sometimes we put up graphics that hopefully represent what we're talking about. Every once in a while, there'll be a tagline at the bottom. And in this one, I asked our communications director, Amber, to put something at the bottom that hopefully people would notice. It's backwards arrow, not forwards arrow. It's interesting because when you think of the future, you think forward. And in this series, what I wanted us to get is that because we know what the future brings according to Scripture, that it should inform backwards our lives today. So if you look at the bottom of this, it talks about the future. This is what we've been talking about every week. The future should inform your faith. For some people, it may be a cementing of what you believe because you think, okay, things have happened that the Bible has, has, has ordained. Uh, there was some future prophecy at least at the time of the written the scriptures, and then those happen later. They should inform and motivate our faith that says, hey, scripture has foretold of things, and they've actually happened. And then that faith should inform your faithfulness today. So knowing the future reinforces or builds or creates faith. And so some of you maybe have not given your life to Jesus yet. Maybe you are still kicking the tires on reading the Bible. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of things maybe you don't understand yet. But as you read about the future and you realize those things actually happen, and without going too much, I'm on a tangent, is that you can see that things were written at a certain time based on the dating of the books and the time frame that things happen. And then later on, those things actually come true. So you have to figure out what to deal with that. Do you believe that scripture actually talks about things that happen in the future and those things actually happen? And if so, <clears throat> that may create faith in God and you, and hopefully that will inform 
your faithfulness. <clears throat> Excuse me. So today we're going to talk about the future temple. We've talked about the future leader, uh, that Jesus will ultimately be the leader of everything. Last week we talked about the future nation, and you can go back and listen to that. Today we are going to talk about <clears throat> the future temple. Now, I told you at the beginning of this series, if you were here week one, that it was going to get weird. And for two weeks, it wasn't super weird. Today is the day that weirdness reigns, okay? Because we are going to be in the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel has all sorts of peculiar things that happen. And in week one, I told you that we would take four major prophets and then all of them speak to a bunch of different subject matter. And it would take me a whole year just to do a couple chapters in some of those books. And so I picked out a theme. All of them overarchingly have different themes, but they all have very common things also. We're going to talk about a couple of those today. Some of it is worship, some of it's idolatry, <clears throat> some of it's what's going to happen in the future. So I picked out something in the future in each one of these books. In the book of Ezekiel, I picked out worship. So here's the question I want to get. How and where will we worship God? Now, I told the story a little bit, so some of you, it's review, but I remember one of the first times I walked into a church where people were worshiping, and I was an atheist at the time, and I thought, these people are insane. They're really, really weird. And I remember, like, at the time, my definition of worship was the music time, the stuff we, we just did. <clears throat> now, in case you're curious, here at LifePoint, we say that the music is the other half of the message. The music is the other half of the message. So I get up here or someone else great gets up here and we say a bunch of words and we talk about scripture and that is a form of worship. But then we also understand that music communicates theology. <clears throat> it communicates theology. But when I thought of worship, I thought when I walk into a church and people are holding their hands up or their hands are in their pockets or they're doing whatever they are during the music part, that that's the worship time in church. And that was the thing that weirded me out because I was just like, I don't like, you know, what if I sweated a lot that day and everyone sees the pit stains? Like, is this a real thing? Some of you are like, preach it, brother. I know what you're talking about. Can't find deodorant that works. I get it. You're my people. But then I just couldn't understand why people would sit and, and stand and and talk and sing songs about worship to God. And part of the reason is that's what's going to happen in the future, is that we're going to worship. Now, we can worship here and now, and there are various ways of talking about that, and there are bad ways to worship. Not all worship is good. In fact, most worship is bad, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But worship is not just the music part of a church service. It's far more than that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And Ezekiel talks about the importance of worship, not only in his context, but he kind of foreshadows what's going to happen as well. So Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is weird. <clears throat> Ezekiel talks about how angels really look like, and some people are like, oh, they're just cute little babies, you know, hanging out in heaven. You're like, no. Angels have like six wings, and there's like eyeballs everywhere, and there are wheels below them. You do not want to meet an angel in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel also has this, this weird um, tasks that God has given him. And we've said pretty much every week that prophets had an unenviable task of talking with people that didn't want to hear their message, and people like totally thought they were insane. But Ezekiel kind of, it took it to another level. God asked him to characterize and dramatize 
what was going to happen to Jerusalem. I'm going to name three of them real quick. One of them is he was asked to build a mini model of the city of Jerusalem. I'm not making this up. It's in Ezekiel chapter 4. And he's supposed to be like, like all that sort of stuff, where God is going to destroy Israel. And another one is God makes Ezekiel lay on his side for an entire year. Any, any side sleeper people here? It's nice for a while, but an entire year. And he makes him ration out his water and his food. And he tells him that he's going to have to cook his food over feces. Again, can't make this up. This is why you read your Bible. You're like, I'm kind of interested, weirded out, but kind of interested now. And it was a foreshadowing that, that there would be a rationing of food and water and people couldn't get the resources that they needed. And they would cook their food over human excrement. It's terrible, right? And another one, God asked him to take a sword and to shave off his beard and his hair, which was all sorts of ramifications for that. And then he asked him to go around the city and burn some of it so it smelled some of the places he went to. He asked him to like throw it up in the air and chop it in front of people. Can you imagine seeing that? He's like, did you just shave yourself with a sword and then cut it up in front of me? You are a lunatic. Like he must have been seen as a crazy individual. And the, the timing of this is kind of interesting because God gives him all these visions and he talks about uh, what's going to happen. And, and Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's, he's in exile. Babylon has come through and, he, and, and conquered. And Ezekiel is out by the riverbank and he has this incredible vision and God's glory is there. And there's something interesting about it because most people saw God's glory or thought depicted him as being represented at the temple. It was the holy place that people, at least at that time, believed God's presence was housed. And Ezekiel's sitting on the bank of a river in exile, and God's glory is there. And he's like, what are you doing here, God? You're supposed to be at the temple at the most holy place. And there's a reason that God is not represented as being at the holy place. So we pick this up in Ezekiel chapter 8. He's asked to do all these weird things. He's talked about as God's new prophet, one of God's prophet, and all this doom and gloom is going to happen to Jerusalem. But God wants to get a few messages through to Ezekiel, and one of them is the importance of worship. So here's what he says in Ezekiel 8. And I promise this story is going to be a little bit odd for a while, and towards the end, I'll make sure it's applicable to you even as we go along. So in Ezekiel 8... It says, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, why couldn't they just do three sixes here? But it's so much easier to, to represent. On the fifth day of the month, <clears throat> I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting in front of me. And there the hand of the Lord came down upon me. And I looked, and there was someone who looked like a man, someone like a son of man. For what seemed to be his waist was down was fire, and from his waist up was something that looked like bright, like the light of a golden amber. And you're like, do you know what a man looks like? I do not know any man who looks like this. And if he's on fire from the waist down, get to the hospital immediately, right? So he's, he's trying to describe this vision and one like a son of man, you know, just to pause for a second, the son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's, he called himself the son of man. It was both a human title and a divine title from the book of Daniel. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But he says, look, I saw this person. It kind of looked like a human being, but you, you had all these other attributes, and you're like, it can't just be a person. Like the golden gleam of amber. He stretched out what appeared to be a hand, and he took me by the hair of my head, and then the Spirit lifted me, lifted me up between earth and heaven and carried me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So he is now 
now tripping out. Like he is just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I get this crazy vision. He's already been seen as a lunatic. And you, you start to listen to this and you kind of go, yeah, I can see why people see it. To the entrance of the inner gate that faces north where the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. I saw the glory of the God of Israel here like the vision I had seen in the plain. So he's talking about when he goes and sees in this vision a place that should be holy and commemorative to God, there are offensive things in that place as well. And then God tells him, he says, son of man. Now God uses this this, uh, term, son of man, to refer to Ezekiel. And it just means, hey, you human being, human being. And there's a clear disparity here. God is not a human being, even though he may have appearance of it. But you, Ezekiel, are a human being. He says, son of man, do you see what they're doing here? Do you see what they're doing here outside the temple? Do you see it? More detestable acts that the house of Israel is committing so that I must depart from my sanctuary? Like, do you see how bad it is? You know, we're, we're about to go to probably different people's houses or people are, are going to come to our houses because of the Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that. And every once in a while, we think, do I have to leave? You know, I'm not sure I like these people. I'm not sure I like what's going on. And God is essentially like, hey, the company that should be in my house should be reverent to me. And now I'm thinking about going because the people who are there will not honor me. You will see even more detestable acts in this. And then he asks him this question over and over. Son of man, do you see? And then he just names some things. So, so I didn't have to read all of this scripture to you. I just wanted to point some of these things out. So God's giving Ezekiel this vision of what should not be. He tells him about the place of worship that everyone should come to and honor God. And God is now narrating to Ezekiel, things are not going well. The worship that is happening on there is not dedicated to me. And the things that they're doing are detestable. So God asks this question, son of man, do you see? Because he wants Ezekiel to have a visual, emotional, and spiritual representation of how terrible it's gotten in a city that's supposed to worship God. The detestable acts that the house of Israel committing. The detestable wicked acts that they are committing there. You know, God says, I see you. I see that you honor me with your lips at times, and I see that you perform terrible acts in my name. Son of man, do you see what the elders, the people who are supposed to be the spiritual, um, not only gurus, but the people who are supposed to lead the nation of Israel in worship of their God, these people are the people who are, are committing these atrocities. Do you see what the house of Israel, can you go back one? Sorry, I went too fast. You're too efficient, Drew. Good job. What the elders of the house of Israel are doing in darkness each at the shrine of his idol. You know, God is saying these people who are supposed to worship the God who is formless and timeless and spaceless, they have tried to manufacture my glory into an image of stone or wood. And in the darkness, in their home, they're worshiping something that is other than me. He says, son of man, do you see how they must also fill the land with violence? And the, the, the implication here is that when you do not worship the God of the universe is that primal instincts and terrible things overtake your brain and your emotions and your consciousness is that you begin to fall far away from what God has created you to be. Repeatedly anger me, even putting the branch to their nose. I'm going to be honest, I don't know what that means, so I'm just going to keep going. Second Chronicles, I just, there's so many visuals, I think they're all wrong, so it's not terrible. So God is essentially saying, I'm going to leave this place. I am going to leave 
the temple. Now, there's a lot of things going on here because the God of the universe who is outside of time and space, who, who was there when everything was built, he really can't be housed in a temple. And he allowed himself to be housed, if you will, or he allowed people to say, you will build a house for my name because he gave them a central place of worship. You know, King David wanted to build it and he couldn't. He had too much blood on his hands, so his son Solomon did it. And so God's glory filled the temple. And that's what people believed is that when they came in to give sacrifices and to worship God, that God's glory was there. And now we're at a point in history where God says, my glory will no longer be there. And what Ezekiel gets to witness is God's glory actually leaving the temple. God takes his glory with him and he leaves. And now it's just a building. And this was talked about in 2 Chronicles too. It says, Israel, if you turn away, this is God talking, if you abandon my statues and my commands that have set before you, that I've set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow down and worship to them, then I will uproot Israel from the soil that I gave them. And this temple that I have sanctified for my name, I will banish it from my presence. I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among all of the people. This, this, this central feature of your city that is supposed to be in honor and worship for me, I will leave it and it will be a place where everyone will look upon it and say, God has left us. Now, here's, here's how this applies to you because you're like, okay, there's a lot of disconnects for me. I am not in exile on the sides of Babylon. I have had no visions like that. Or if I had, I've sought help. <laughs> you know, some, a lot of people are like, am I supposed to have these kind of visions? I don't know what it's like to be in exile. I have not worshipped idols. I haven't sat on my side for a year rationing my food and cooking my food over feces. I got no, like, relatability here. But here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. How do we worship, how do we worship God without worshipping something else? This is the application that we can get from this story. Every human being worships something. Even an atheist does that. I could tell you because I was one. I worshiped logic, reason, self. Like everyone worships something. We may not use that language. We may say, I really like this, I really love this, I'm really into this, but everyone worships something. It's part of God's plan and desire and makeup for people is we are built to worship. Or to be more clear, we're built to worship one thing, God himself. But we have the ability, God has allowed us, at least with Adam and Eve, he gave them a choice to worship something other than themselves, and they took it. Now someday, all of creation, everything will worship. We're not there yet. So all we're talking about right now is right now. How do we worship God without worshiping something else. Now, here's again maybe one of the disconnects is that sometimes when people look at Christianity and especially when they read the Old Testament, they think some of these ideas are antiquated. Like, but there are idols still. You go to other countries, they still exist. They're made out of metal and stone and wood. And some people think, ah, oh, those are just third world problems. Those are places where people are uneducated. There's like witchcraft and there's lots of things that people do. Us in the Western world, people who are educated, we don't do that. It's not true. I mean, I, I probably, if I went to your house, I probably wouldn't find an idol at your house. At least one that looks like something in the Old Testament. 
So here's a little bit of a distinction to make us a little bit uncomfortable real quick. You know, idolatry is this. Idolatry is taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing. It's taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing. I'm going to give you some practical examples of this. Because idolatry is not just a physical statue. It was in their time. And part of the reason they wanted that is because they could not see God. And so they wanted to control God, and they wanted to have someone in their midst that they could see and touch. Moses brought this up. He says, you exchanged God's invisible qualities for a God you could see. So they built things. And maybe you don't do this. But I guarantee you, in your life and in my life, we have some form of idolatry. Let me give you a few different examples. Your kids, if you have kids. Your kids are good. Well, most of your kids aren't good. But we're just going to, for the sake of this argument, we're going to pretend that they're good for a second. Kids are a good thing. I mean, Scripture talks about them as, you know, crown jewels for us. They're, they're ways for us to enjoy life. They're a way for us to, you know, really enjoy the next generation. But your kids can become an idol. Your entire life can be set around them. You can put all of your time and effort. And again, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm, I'm saying this is a we problem, not, not in anybody specific. I mean, we can put so much time and effort into our kids that we forget our marriage, and then we forget our relationship with God, and we forget our, everything else. I mean, we can take something that's good and turn it into a God. And people have done that. What about sex? You're like, what about sex? Well, sex is a good thing. I mean, God gave it. I mean, thank God that God made it pleasurable. I mean, it could have been terrible, right? But like every time you do it, you feel like you're being hit in the face with a sledgehammer. You're like, nah, I'm out. It's great that it's pleasurable and it's great that it's good. But there are perversions of sex. There are natural versions of this. It's part of the reason that people look at pornography because they enjoy looking at a male or a female body. Even though God has made their bodies good and wholesome and amazing, people have worshipped men and women and they can't get enough of it, which is why they watch these things. It's a form of idolatry. There's no statue. What about money? Money. I mean, people think that the Bible says that the money is the root of all evil. It's not true. The love of money is the root of all evil. And once you love it more than anything else, it becomes your idol. And Jesus said that the, the, the thing that would compete for your heart more than everything else is money and stuff. It's a form of idolatry. As you look at your bank account, and it's not even that you necessarily have money that you can have it be an idol. If you don't have money, it's still your idol because you seek after it over everything else. And if you have lots of money, then you want to keep it above all else. And you check to see how much you have and how much you have lost and to become a different kind of idol. Your time can become an idol. You think, man, it's the most precious thing that I have. It's not. Your time is not the most precious thing that you have. Your life is because it can be given away. And when we think about time and we think, I don't want to spend my time doing this, I don't want to give this away, we, it is our idol because we turn something that's good, that God has given us time on this earth, and we take it in a selfish way and use it for our own purposes. Anything in your life that is good can be turned into an idol. And maybe most people don't think this way. And maybe think about it a different way if we're going to talk about uh, worship. So pagan, meaning not of God, pagan ungodly worship prioritizes getting something from a God. Now, during Ezekiel's time and during many times in the Bible is that people 
part of the reason they would go into idolatry is because they wanted to get something. Sometimes they would sacrifice children. Sometimes they would sacrifice animals. But they always wanted to get something out of a pagan god that they had created. It might be rain for their crops. It might be fertility. It might be success for their campaigns. It might be something for their city. It might be protection. But they often sacrificed or worshipped a god if they felt like they could get something from it. And we can treat the God of the universe this way. We can treat ourselves in a pagan way when we ask God, God, if you do this, I will do this. God, I want this from you. When we treat God as a way to get something, that is not godly biblical worship. Because biblical worship is the opposite of this. It's this. Godly worship prioritizes giving something to God, not getting It prioritizes giving something to God. The reason that Christians should worship is that we are so grateful and so thankful that we spend the rest of our lives going, you are worthy. If you gave us nothing else but Jesus Christ, you've given us too much. And we worship him because we want to give back our time, our finances, our gifts, our life, Everything like our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our intentions, our children. We want to give those to him to say, these are a gift from you. Our marriage, our jobs, everything we want to give to him because he is worthy of worship. He's already given us too much. And the challenge is, is that if we treat God as if he is the ultimate giver after he has given his son, that we chase after him, It's not biblical godly worship. It's actually pagan worship because they wanted so desperately to get something from the gods that they had worshipped. You know, Jesus talked a little bit about how worship was going to change in his time. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, it highlights that God would leave the temple, and he does. And it highlights the time when Jerusalem would be destroyed, which it did get destroyed. And their temple was crushed, and they felt like they had no place to worship, at least for a while. And then the New Testament points out how worship was going to dramatically change when Jesus Christ got on the scene. So at one point in John chapter 4, Jesus is dealing with this issue of where to worship. You can put that up there for me. Thank you. Jesus is talking with this woman. There's all sorts of things wrong, quote unquote, with this conversation. Jesus shouldn't be alone with this woman. Uh, This woman, people think, was some sort of prostitute or something else. And so he was considered a holy man. There's all sorts of problems with this conversation, but it leads to worship. And she's kind of talking with Jesus, and she's trying to ask, get him not to ask any questions about her personal life. And she's like, oh, what's over there? Look over there the whole time. So she starts talking about worship, and Jesus entertains this idea. He says, let's talk about worship for a second. So the woman says to him, sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Because he said stuff about her that only someone who was a prophet could know. He tells stuff to her about her personal life that either she hasn't shared with anyone or he makes conclusions about where she's going that she knows are absolutely true. And so she gets to a point where she goes, you know, Jesus, you're not like any other person I've met. He says, and she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. There's a location for them. But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Which one's right? 
Jesus told her, believe me, woman. Now he changes the entire thought process behind the conversation. She is thinking geographically and location-based. And he's like, it's not about that, or at least it won't be. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And Jesus is being offensive here. He's like, hey, your, your viewpoint of God is a little bit skewed. And the way you worship and the who you worship is a little bit skewed. It's imperfect. But the Jews, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. I mean, Jesus is a first century Jew with Jewish heritage, and he comes to fulfill the Jewish messianic prophecies. He says, says, but an hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers, people who truly worship God, will no longer be location-based. They will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's telling them the type of ways they are to worship. And because this is in the New Testament, and because Jesus' covenant is now for today as well, this is for you. In spirit and in truth, not in a building. It can happen in a building. But we must never think, like the Samaritan woman did, that it's location-based. And there are positives and negatives, which we'll see in just a second. The way we worship, we can summarize it this way. The way we worship is and will be more important than the location in which we worship. And this is why churches for a long time have started to debunk, dismantle the idea that this is God's house. This is not God's house. This is a building on Stephanie Way. This is not God's house. Now, it's, it's been like a colloquialism, things that people have say, said, like, hey, I'm going to go and worship at God's house. And I think it's out of respect and reverence. But part of the reason that so many pastors and so many Christians have pushed back on the idea that a house of God is a building is because Scripture seems to directly challenge that assumption. This isn't God's house. This is a location where Christians gather in worship and Christians gather to hear a message. It's just a building. There's nothing special about it. You know, we we like to anoint things with oil and we believe that when we gather in his name that we're blessed, but it's not because of the walls. And certainly not because of the technology because it goes out all the time. seems like Satan here all the time, right? You're like, come on. So part of the other reason to, to talk about this, you know, Peter talks in and, uh, and, and, and following Jesus' notion about what the temple actually looks like. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 2. Peter has walked around with Jesus. He has heard Jesus say some crazy things. I mean, Jesus, towards the end of his life, he said, when you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild in three days. And everyone thought of the building. They, they, they lost the fact that Jesus was the temple of God. It was him, his body. And so when people are like, it took us like hundreds of years to build this temple. And he's like, okay, you guys get nothing. Like, yeah, I don't get it. He was talking about his own body. And then that would move forward for the disciples afterwards. Because God says, I'm going to send my spirit to you. In John chapters 12 to 14, Jesus talks about how the spirit of God would be housed in his people. And so when Peter picks up this notion, later on in the New Testament, he uses some interesting language that seems like it's for a physical temple, but it's a metaphor for people. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he's, he's telling Christians, rid yourselves of all malice. You should not act as the world does because you worship a God 
but is different than everyone else. Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire pure milk of the word, scripture, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. You have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he uses this analogy. He says, as you come to him, a living stone. Now, a lot of times the temple were built with stone. And so this analogy, Jesus is called the capstone. He's also called the cornerstone. He's also called the stone that people trip over, which is a funny biblical metaphor. I love it. Is that Jesus was the stone that the builders had rejected and the religious people would trip over because they did not want to build on the foundation that is Christ. And this analogy is used in all sorts of other ways. The Apostle Paul would talk about the foundation being built on Christ Jesus, that no other foundation can be laid and remain steadfast. So this analogy of a building actually being people is used more than a few places. So here's what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see how he uses kind of like temple language here? Because the temple was a physical building. The priests went in there. They made the sacrifices. And they worshiped God. And Peter saw what Jesus was doing. He's like, hey, you are the priesthood now. It's not a lineage thing. It's an everyone who believes in Jesus Christ thing. The priests are now the royal priesthood, which is everyone who has the Spirit of God in them. And the high priest is Jesus himself. And the sacrifice has already been met. There's no longer a need for any physical sacrifice. That's why Peter says spiritual sacrifices. He says there are things that you have to say no to in order to become a Christian. There are things that as you are a Christian and walking along your life, you have to continue to sacrifice at the metaphorical altar of God's name. You cannot join and not be changed. You can't say yes to Jesus and say yes to everything you said prior to Jesus. You must make sacrifices. So a couple of different uh, next steps after this point. So the future temple, the future temple will be all of creation worshiping God in every way, at every moment, and in every action. And part of the reason this is going to be the case is that you are the temple now. The most holy place on the planet is no longer a building set in the Middle East. It's you. And you're like, I don't feel that holy and I'm not very temple-like. I get it. This is why this concept is so hard, is that God's presence could leave the physical temple and go somewhere else. God promised you that he would never leave you. If you have given your life to Jesus and you have said that he is my Lord and my Savior, that you have had your sins forgiven and God's spirit lives within you and he promises never to leave you. It's a, such a better deal. Because God could leave the physical temple and people were left wondering, where did he go? You never have to wonder because your body is the temple of the living God. It's part of the reason why we must treat it well, why we must showcase God. It's part of the reason why we must, in our lives, showcase that we are a royal priesthood. That everything around us should be centered on the fact that God lives within us. There's no more holy person or place on the planet than you if you have God's spirit. 
Now, how, how do you worship them? Because we talked about how worship is going to happen for all times. You know, when Jesus comes back, and we'll talk about this next year in May and the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. Very exciting stuff. It's going to get weird then too, but it'll be awesome. When he comes back and the wicked people are put in their place and they're set aside, and when all of creation are only the people and the beings that love and cherish God, we will worship him in our everyday work, in our thoughts, in our minds, in our household, and everything else in every relationship. So how do you prepare for that? You know, part of what we need to realize is that like our life is somewhat of a staging ground. If you don't like to worship now, I'm not sure you're going to like heaven because it's going to be worship. It doesn't mean one long worship service, but everything in your life will be geared to worship him. So how do you prepare for that now? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question. Thank you. So I've got four different ways to do it because, you know, this is lofty stuff. You're like, okay, I'm not, I don't have any bearing on when God comes back. How do I do that now? Well, I think there are at least four ways you can do this now to kind of practice and to kind of get yourself ready. You know, to use a different analogy, you know, most, most teams win the game in practice during the week. They go through everything so much that it becomes ingrained and habitual and second nature to them. And what we're asking is what, what God is asking for is to worship here and now in order to get used to you worshiping for all eternity. So here are four ways you can do this now. The first one is communally. It's what we're doing today. <clears throat> Worshiping together in person at church and together in your group. Now, again, when we say at church, we do not mean a building. We just happen to gather on a certain day of the week every week. Or, yeah, every week. And so we, we worship together. And that is a great thing. It's just not the only thing. It's part of the reason we tell people to get into a group because we believe that whenever you gather with other people who are Christ-like or at least searching him, you are blessed. You can do church in your small group, in your house. Now, we hope you come and we think we love what we do here and we want to help provide an environment where people can seek God and where they can find him. But our, our job here is to inspire you to live a life of worship Monday to Saturday. Like, this isn't the one day that you worship or should worship. So the first one is communally. There's something different. And this is part of the, I'm just going to complain. I'm going to whine for a second. So just let me do it. Every once in a while, I run into people who go, ah, nature is my worship. You know, I go and do this. I was like, that's fine. You can do that. But not in place of together. Not in place of together. There's something special that happens when a, when a bunch of people with a similar mindset and similar um, goals get together and they sing songs to God. One of my favorite times, you guys don't know this, like a creeper, I'm backstage over there before I get on stage. And one of the things I really enjoy is listening to you guys sing. It's beautiful. It's incredible. In a small portion in Minden, Nevada, hundreds of people are gathered to worship the God of the universe. It's, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. So worship communally. Second one is individually. There is a time for you to worship individually. You cannot just worship on a Sunday in private where your heavenly father sees you. I mean, Jesus was very clear on this. He says, when you pray, don't go out on the street side and say a bunch of words. Go into your bedroom and worship because there's something also to be said. Communal worship is great and individual worship is great. And part of the reason individual worship is great is because you don't have to perform for anybody. You don't have to, you have to know you have an audience of one person, and it's just God himself. And when you do it, God sees you, Jesus says, and rewards you in your faith. 
I don't know what the reward exactly is, but the fact that you would take time out of your day, and you've got probably a billion things to do like, like me, you're probably incredibly busy, and you put all that aside, and you say, none of that will become my idol, and none of that takes precedence, because God deserves my time, and my effort, and my worships. So individually, you got to do that too, or you should do that. Number three is truthfully. <clears throat> Number three is truthfully. Reading the truth in the Word to learn about Jesus, who is called the Word, who is the truth. Now, part of the problem is that we can become accidental idolaters. Meaning, if you're not worshiping the God in Scripture, you're committing idolatry. You may not even think you are. You may not have no intention of doing so. But if you do not worship the God who is talked about in Scripture, you are not worshiping the God of the universe. Which is why it's so important to read Scripture. Because God has defined ways of asking for worship. He's told us how we are to worship, how we're not to worship. Jesus told us how to pray and how not to pray. He told us when to do it, under what circumstances. He told us who to pray for. He told us the things that we are not to do. You have to read scripture in order to understand the person that you are worshiping. And then the fourth one <clears throat> is spiritually. With genuine, heartfelt, and joyful intention led by the Spirit. The reason this one is there is that because worship can feel like a duty. I have to do this. Ugh, got to worship that God guy again. People think that about Sundays. I have to go to church. Oh, you guys have to go to church. You're missing a lot of good football. I mean, I have to go there. I mean, I got to show up. I mean, my family does it. I have to go. Like have tos when it comes to worship, it's just going to make you miserable. It just is. And some days, you don't feel like doing it. Heck, to be honest, some days I don't feel like being up here. I'm like, ah, psh. I got other things I could do, or I'm just not feeling it today, or something's happened in my personal life. And, and that's the thing that we have to get to is like, this isn't a have to. And I don't know about you, but the times that I haven't wanted to be here, again, I work here, you know, I, I, a lot of my life is centered around this place. When I come here and worship, guess what I feel? Better. I leave feeling better. I may be a complete jerk when I walk into the building, but when I leave, I'm 50% of that jerk. It's even better, right? It's great. Spiritually, is that you hopefully want, with a genuine and heartfelt intention, that you ask God's Spirit, hey, help me worship when I don't want to. Help me worship in joy. Help me not think of this as a chore, because that's what happened to Jerusalem. As they kept making their sacrifices, and they kept coming in on the same day, and God called them out. He's like, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need the time that you say that you're coming in to worship me. You're just going through the motions. There's no joy in it. So all that to say is that the future temple is going to be all of creation, including you. And right now, you are the temple of God. You, today. Which means you take God with you everywhere you go, and you're able to worship with him in everything that you do. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for just the insistence from Ezekiel, and Jesus, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and all the people who got to stand in the shadow of the temple. Many of them saw the building. Some of them saw it be destroyed. But ultimately, Lord, the temple that they all revered was your son, Jesus Christ, when they finally got it. Years later, that the temple would be destroyed would be your body. 
and that you would rebuild it. You would come back three days later and you would show us a new way to worship. Lord, help us worship in all the ways that we talked about today, truthfully and communally and individually and spiritually. Help us worship even as we go to lunch, as we leave, as we parent, as we're in our marriages, as we're in our job. Help us worship in everything that we do because someday that will be encompassed in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.